Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Good afternoon and welcome to At Yale Live. I'm Eric Gershon. The 2012 elections are over and Americans have returned the sitting president to the White House. The balance of power in Congress remains little changed. Republicans keep control of the House of Representatives. Democrats keep control of the Senate. So how will America change? What does the near future of the United States look like? What are the issues we can expect our leaders to address and how? Three Yale scholars join us today to offer their thoughts on the election's likely consequences for near-term public policy. Jacob Hacker, political scientist and director of Yale's Institution for Social and Policy Studies. Beverly Gage, historian of the US political ideology and institutions. And from the Yale School of Management, David Bach, who studies and teaches about financial market regulation and global business. We are delighted to have you all here. Thank you for having me. So let's, let's jump right in. We've got the president back in the White House. We've got a Congress that's roughly balanced about the same. How has the environment for governance changed? Well, as you described it, right, it hasn't changed in a fundamental way. Um, the House Republicans are, have lost a few of their ranks, but it's still a very conservative caucus. And so the real question is how will Republicans respond to the election results? Um, leading up to uh, the election, the central issue uh, was this question of what we were going to do to deal with the expiring Bush tax cuts and, and a bunch of spending cuts that are scheduled to go into effect and now are being called the fiscal cliff. Um, and that's going to be the, the first order of business of Congress is dealing with that. In fact, it'll be the lame duck session. It won't be the newly elected members. And if you look at the statements that are coming out of the White House and, Repu and uh, the Republican caucus, John Boehner, you know, I think it's right now there maybe is a little bit of a sign toward conciliation on the part of the House. There's a bit more of mojo on the part of the, uh, of the president. But it sounds like we are, we're back at, you know, at the same fundamental issue, which has to do with to what extent are revenues, tax, uh, you know, not letting these tax cuts expire be a big part of the, uh, of the package. And, you know, my, my own view is that the, the Democrats are probably going to have to go pretty far to push the Republican caucus. Um, there isn't a real sign yet um, that Republicans read this election as being a kind of repudiation of uh, more fundamental aspects of their governing philosophy. Um, there's a sense that they're at a strategic disadvantage in this fight, but I still think it's going to be a really fierce battle. And we uh, are, you know, probably happy to forget that the debt ceiling uh, is actually an issue. Um, you know, that right now um, everyone's focused on the fiscal cliff, but soon the debt ceiling will be reached again and we'll have the same fight, that, uh, same kind of fight that we had in 2011. So, um, so I think that's the way to understand it. What is going to be the strategic response of Republicans to the election results? Because the basic uh, balance of power hasn't really changed. So you said the Democrats are going to have to go pretty far. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, the way people are talking about now is go over the cliff, which makes it sound like it's all going to happen on one day. Um, the big. The big aspect of the cliff that people talk about is the expiring tax cuts. Um, and so that will happen at the beginning of the new year. And there is a broad sense among Democrats, particularly more liberal Democrats, that to get the Republicans to sign on to serious revenue increases, which would mean letting uh, the Bush tax cuts expire for the richest 2% of Americans for income levels above $250,000, at least substantially raising those uh, rates, maybe not going back to the Clinton era rates. For that to happen, you're going to have to 
go over the cliff. You're going to have to actually see the uh, the tax um, the tax increase uh, tax increases for that uh, for all Americans go into effect. That is to have all of the Bush tax expire, including those for the middle class. Now. Because the, the Treasury Department, you know, because of tax day is until April 15th and because, you know, there's, with, there's withholding, but, you know, the Treasury Department has some latitude, there, this may actually be more symbolic than real. And so the question is, how will the stock market respond? How will, um, you know, how will the, um, the you know, the uh, commentators respond? Uh, but Republicans feel as if that um, they are likely as in, uh, to take a substantial share of the blame if this happens. And so Democrats are thinking if if they push over the cliff, that they're likely to be in a stronger bargaining position. I just mentioned one other thing, which I think is really, you know, crucial to understand in this debate, and that is that the Republicans are not just worried about Democrats; they're worried about their own political base. You know, the the, the biggest concern uh, up till now has been Grover Norquist and his anti-tax pledge. And Norquist has made clear that while you know you could rejigger the tax code in ways that might raise revenues without violating his no new taxes pledge that um, actually raising the top tax brackets counts as a tax increase. Now some Republicans and Democrats say well you know if we go over the cliff then all of a sudden you know all bets are off but you know Norquist is not a dumb guy right he, he knows that, that that's that's what they you know he knows that that counts as allowing tax rates to go up for the top um, and so um, does Norquist have the kind of sway he did before? It didn't. The folks who signed the pledge, the new, the new candidates who signed the pledge, did not do particularly well. There's a sense that you know there has to be some serious adjustments in the budget, and that um, the kind of uh, dogmatic position that, that Norquist has isn't as viable as it used to be. But um, people have bet against this kind of hardline stance before and lost. And um, Republicans uh, are pretty well protected in the House. You know, they they've been reelected at very high rates. Uh, they have. While the money that was in the election didn't seem to make a big difference at the aggregate level, it, it did help uh, shield uh, Republican incumbents. And so there may be a wise a sense within the Republican caucus they can wait the storm out. And that while they'll have to accept some increase in revenues and, and much of it coming from the wealthiest of Americans, so they wouldn't have to go all the way. So does the president's reelection um, improve his negotiating position in, with this respect to this issue at all in the view of any of you? Well, I'd say that that actually is one place where things have changed. So not simply the fact that Obama was reelected, which obviously puts him um, in a slightly different position in terms of not needing to then run for reelection one more time. But I think one of the big questions that was on the table here was what kind of public narrative we were going to have about the Obama presidency. And that was one of the things that was being decided here. You know, when Barack Obama was uh, elected, there was a lot of talk that we were entering kind of a shift in the ideological cycles of American politics and in the kind of cycles of party dominance in American politics, which is to say that you know, roughly from uh, Franklin Roosevelt through to Ronald Reagan, we had a period that was roughly characterized as being really dominated by the Democratic Party, dominated by kind of liberal ideas with the rise of Ronald Reagan and then through the Bush presidencies, you know, we had a period that's really dominated by more conservative ideas, dominated by the Republican Party structurally. And one of the big questions was, so did the election of Barack Obama signal some kind of emerging shift, both ideologically and in terms of party coalitions, um, and in terms of who was going to be really 
uh, pushing and who was going to be reacting for the future. Um, and I think had he not been reelected, we would have seen a story emerge that there was a moment of crisis, something weird happened, which is that we elected the first African-American president, we elected a Democrat, but you know things went back to the way that they were before. And the fact that he's been reelected, I think really fundamentally changes that narrative and makes uh, much bigger questions possible now about uh, the ways in which big ideas are shifting. Uh, it makes things possible for Obama himself. Um, again, not only the fact that he's not going to have to run for re-election, um, but the fact that he has been kind of affirmed in a different way. He's not just a president who kind of came to power in a moment of crisis now, right? He is someone whose uh, policies and ideas have been affirmed in what was uh, certainly a close election. And I think in many ways, a much closer election than the public narrative at the moment is actually suggesting that it was. Certainly in historical terms, this was a very close mm -hmm. election. And yeah. maybe that's something uh, that we want to talk about a little bit. But I do think he's gained uh, the ability to kind of capitalize on and create his own narrative now um, in ways that, that were less possible at earlier moments. And I would just say to, to follow on that, that I think that there was a lot of criticism that the president really didn't have a, a very uh, ambitious forward-looking agenda. Um, but that vice, perhaps, could be a virtue when it comes to this issue because he did talk a lot about how the one thing he wasn't going to let happen was to let, uh, to let us go forward and extend tax cuts for rich people who, like him, he keeps saying, mm -hmm. who, who don't need it. So, so in that sense, I think there, there are very few mandates you can read. In, I'm generally skeptical about reading mandates into election results, period, but there's very few mandates you can read into this election, I think. Um, but this is one of them, right? And the president clearly thinks that he has the upper hand and, on and this he issue. He said exactly that yesterday at the press conference, that, yeah. look, I mean, the one thing that I've been saying consistently <laughs> right. is exactly that. And I think you're right. I mean, it isn't just that he was reelected, but it was also how he was reelected, the fact that the coalition held up, that there was a, a governing coalition that perhaps we haven't seen in the past before about uh, minorities, about uh, women, about young people, about urban voters. And, you know, if you look at the demographics, you look at the exit polls, a lot of these people agree that some of the wealthiest need to pay more. The interesting thing, of course, with, this, with the cliff is, and I think you're absolutely right, Jacob, about, you know, it doesn't kick in right away. Well, you know, on January 1st, once we've gone over it, Republicans and Democrats can come together and put in place a tax cut for 98% of Americans. <laughs> right. That's a pretty popular thing to do. Now, Grover Norquist can say, well, you know, you raised them for 2%. Well, nobody raised anything. That decision was taken more than a year ago. It just now happens, and then we all come together, declare victory for, you know, cutting taxes for 98%. Well, that's a very positive view. I mean, but it does remind me that back when the Bush tax cuts were uh, enacted, there were sort of Democratic and liberal wags who were saying that Bush not only passed the one of the largest tax cuts in American history, but also one of the largest tax hikes. And we should, because of course these were sure. all set to expire and they've been extended now in two separate um, periods. And we should remember that the reason that they were not put in place permanently um, was because of the, the budget rules. And they were not willing to, if, if they had been willing to specify ways right. to pay for them indefinitely, then of course uh, they, they would be able to stay on the books. So you know, this, this has been a, um, an ongoing issue. For Republicans, it was really playing to their advantage. Every time this came up, they said, look, we're going to have this massive tax increase. You know, and, and strategically, it seemed as if it was really working to their advantage. I think the, uh, it, you know, again, with a kind of modest, targeted approach, 
the administration has put the Republicans in actually a pretty difficult strategic position. They came That's in right. saying, oh, you know, we're, we're going to let all of these tax cuts continue except for this small portion, which turns out to be a pretty big chunk of money, but a right. small share of the population, the $800 billion over 10 years that goes to the top 2%. And, you know, with the economy weak and with the president's position, frankly, weak after the 2010 midterms, they weren't able to get it. Now I think they feel pretty confident they can get something uh, substantial, or, uh, if not, you know, returning to the Clinton era tax rates for the top, at least, uh, at least having some movement in that direction, plus some kinds of, of tax reform, tax, capping tax deductions that will raise money as well. Right. Given uh, the urgency uh, and the deadline uh, for dealing with the fiscal cliff, it's taking up a lot of uh, space in uh, the print media and the broadcast media. It's, it's on everybody's uh, mind. Um, well, whatever is left over from the portrayal scandal, right? right. I mean, that's <laughs> the exactly. Right. The fact that we're going over the cliff, that it's 4% of GDP, comes second. As far as the media is concerned, this is great, because they've been coming up with ways to dramatize the fiscal cliff. You know, it's like Selma and Louise style, you know, showing big pictures of cliffs and, you know, the, the, this, the fear that we should all be feeling about this. But frankly, their heart's not really in it, right? It's a policy issue. You know, most of the cable news is just not interested in it. All of a sudden, sex scandal. It's right. just you know, happy days are here. Yeah. So. We'll just be thankful it's not the Grover Norquist sex scandal. <laughs> Which would That's really, right. really take us over the cliff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so one theme, obviously, um, that we heard a lot about in the campaign, uh, certainly from uh, Mitt Romney, was about jobs, uh, jobs and employment. Um, and we've got roughly 8% national unemployment uh, still now, and GDP is not really growing all yeah. that fast. So uh, it seems like uh, once the uh, panic, uh, for lack of a better term, over the fiscal cliff subsides somewhat, Jobs are likely to reemerge as a front burner issue, and so I wonder if uh, if any of you have thoughts on uh, you know actions, meaningful actions that government can take, and that the president, to the extent that the, that the president can actually influence the economy, um, uh, should or could take. Well, I think the the good news for Obama is that in fact, right, things are. When, when, we, when we stand back in 30 years and look at his presidency, there's a very, very good likelihood that compared to the moment that he came into office, the place that we're going to end up in 2016 is going to be much, much better and probably better than where we are now. I mean, of course, there are precedents like, for instance, the 1937 election in which Franklin Roosevelt was he the last Democrat to be reelected with a majority? I believe there are people are playing around with all of these, uh, all of these uh, kind of historical comparisons at the moment. Um, but he's elected in an overwhelming landslide that uh, we haven't seen the likes of in a long, long time in American politics, and of course uh, immediately hits a new recession. And I don't think that there's a lot of expectation about that, though that is of course one of the concerns as we uh, as we talk about the fiscal cliff here. But uh, the likelihood is that in terms of his presidency, whatever he does, things are going to look better by the time he's leaving office than they did uh, well, when he started. I would only say whatever he does within some broad right. parameters. Right. I mean, could really screw it up. It is and, absolutely and, he, and they understand that. I mean, the, 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 uh, uh, the FDR example is a good one because in 38, there was a real belt tightening that took place at Roosevelt's insistence, and it turned out to you know, precipitate major reversal. And um, so the, the, the administration, the president, are acutely aware that while they would like to get some kind of bargain, budget bargain, it shouldn't contract spending substantially in the short term. It shouldn't impose um, a lot of, it shouldn't be getting a lot of new revenue, particularly from, from the middle, you know, from middle and lower income Americans in the near term. Uh, and, you know, my, my concern is that this 
if we think about the jobs picture, is that you know that we have seen even bef before the downturn, we saw relatively slow uh, job growth. We didn't see big middle income gains. Uh, I mean, I completely agree with Bev that things are going to be a lot better in, in four years than they were uh, in 2008, and, and I really hope and, and, and expect that it'll be better than they are now. But it seems to me that probably more is going to be needed in the short to medium term to try to boost um, job growth. And it's not clear that there's a real neither an, an appetite in Washington nor a strategy on the part of the president to get that done. Uh, and so, you know, there is some mobilization in the, in the wake <coughs> of the election to try to bring that issue to front and center. Labor groups, sort of, uh, the, the, the usual suspects have said, look, let's do some serious infrastructure spending now. It seems to be the only thing that you might get business mm -hmm. and labor to agree on. Um, you know, I think that there are some possible possibilities, um, but this is really a, an administration, I think, sees it itself as having two main priorities. One is getting some kind of deal here that leaves room open for some public investment, um, and two, uh, consolidating on the big legislative achievements of the first four years. So making sure the Affordable Care Act is implemented, making sure that the Dodd-Frank financial reform uh, legislation is implemented. So, you know, it may not, it, you know, it may be that the administration has to hope that there's sort of that momentum inherent in the trajectory of the economy because, as far as I can see it, there isn't a real, like, strategy for, right. for, gr for, for medium or longer-term growth that they're, that's being talked about well, right and, now. And the debate in that respect, I mean, the entire campaign has been misleading, right? Yeah. I mean, you had basically two guys fighting over who's better at creating jobs. Okay? None of them is good at it. You know, that's actually <laughs> not what the government does. I mean, in that respect, you know, I, the, the critics are right. I mean, if Romney, for all his you know, <laughs> rhetoric about you know, business and small business, whatever, I create jobs. I'm going to create 20 million jobs. It's about setting the conditions. And actually, I think Beth is exactly right. You're right also. I mean, a lot of the uh, you know, difficult decisions have, have been made. And job growth is, is slow. And you know, you've done some great work about some of the structural reasons why potentially the recovery you know, favors some more than others. Uh, but from a cyclical perspective, you know, things are improving. And, and really, you know, going back to your point, it's about not messing it up. Now, one way of messing it up is actually not getting a deal done in the short term, right? I mean, it is, you know, up to 4% of GDP <laughs> yeah, that we're talking about. Amazing. There are a couple of other things that will be important uh, in terms of energy costs, for example. I think that's an area where I think if an effort can be made to make sure energy costs remain relatively low, uh, that's been... Uh, you know, supporting a sort of renaissance of manufacturing and part of the U.S. That's going to be important. Um, so certainly things that can be done. Some people are talking about a, you know, an additional package. I agree. I think that's, that's you know, relatively, relatively unlikely, even though a lot of economists are saying what we need is actually still some stimulus in the short term with a very credible commitment yeah. about consolidation in the medium to long term. The problem is, you know, politics don't work that way. It's incredibly difficult to make that kind of a medium to long term commitment credible as far as financial markets are concerned. So you remember at some point in the campaign, um, there was a lot of attention focused on the fact that no incumbent president had been reelected with unemployment um, as high as it was at the time. Barack Obama was reelected despite that. So does, it, does that suggest to you that the electorate really wasn't uh, persuaded that, you know, despite everything that both candidates were saying, that they were going to be able to make a big difference in the jobs picture? Well, I think that was part of it, but I you know, put my political science hat on for just a moment and say that, you know, that meme that, you know, that, that the unemployment rate or even the growth of GDP is sort of the most important determinant of the prospects for a president is just at odds with most of the research that suggests that, um, that there is a wide, <laughs> wide range of outcomes possible at, a, at an unemployment rate of around 
uh, 7 to 8 percent. Um, so the president was at the upper end of the, the level where you would expect that he could get reelected, but he had incumbency advantage in his favor. Um, he had the direction of the economy in his favor. There's, you know, there's uh, mixed, but I think pretty, pretty good evidence that it's really the period just prior to the election that's crucial. And I think that um, th then finally, so those two things matter a lot, then finally I would say that, um, that the, the campaigns um, and the sort of choice that's presented to the electorate does matter. And, you know, what was really striking to me here was the extent, was just how, you know, despite all the talk about undecided voters and shifts in the final, you know, months, was just how stable the divide was and how much it came down to the president and his really impressive campaign team getting out people um, to vote. And, um, and probably, and this, this we'll see how long-lived this is, it did rest on a bit of a structural advantage that the Democrats seem to enjoy right now. Um, you know, we've historically talked about how the Republicans might enjoy a structural advantage in the Electoral College because um, Democrats kind of uh, you know, waste a lot of votes in urban areas and in, 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 the, in some, of the sparsely uh, some of the densely populated um, Democratic states. But this time around, um, you know, there are estimates that the Democrats, the Republicans would have had to have a two percentage point national vote advantage to win the Electoral College, which is, you know, pretty remarkable. So had there could have, there were scenarios under which the, the President Obama would lose the popular vote and win the Electoral College with a pretty good margin. And so that suggests that it, maybe we're seeing, with the consolidation of, of a very strongly Republican electorate on one side and a Democrat electorate on the other side, and the matching of it up with some of these states that have, um, you know, that are very, you know, that are very, um, Solid, very, very solidly Republican. That they're that Republicans actually at the national level, at the electoral college level, maybe have a little bit of a disadvantage. But my view is coming back to it that the economy was good enough that people that incumbency advantage and the choice element of the election could become much more important. And with regard to the latter, I would just say with regard to the choice that. You know, the Republicans, you know, Romney kind of moved back to the center right before the election, but the, the Republicans basically uh, doubled down on a pretty conservative economic position. And coupled with a, an electorate that's changing, it just yeah. didn't resonate. It yeah. just didn't resonate. You know, Obama did not have a, you know, he pushed back hard against that. He was very hard on, you know, he, he tried to shoot up the unfavorability of the ratings of Romney. But he did, he, he did not have... I would say some kind of like wham, bam, whiz, gee whiz kind of economic message out there. It was just that he was, he was very clearly pushing back against what would be considered the more kind of uh, uh, conservative economic elements of the Republican agenda. And those elements did not do a very good job of getting people who were not already hardcore Republican supporters. And, and the exit polls reflect that also, right? I mean, I think, you know, for, for me, one of the main moments of the campaign was Bill Clinton's speech when he yeah. said, you know, basically the message of the Republicans are, you know, we messed it up. He hasn't fixed it in four years. It's time to put us back in. And, and I think the Obama team actually then ran with that. I mean, it provided a narrative for what they've right. been saying before. Um, and if you look at the exit polls, you know, more people still faulted the Bush administration and their economic policy for the current crisis yeah. than the Obama administration. And, and that's something that I think is lost if you just look at the macroeconomic numbers or the labor market numbers. Right, because there are some elections in which it really doesn't matter who the candidates mm. are, right? It's yeah. very clear, it doesn't really matter who the candidates are, and it doesn't really matter how well the campaign, campaigns are done, right? They're just going to go one way or another. And this absolutely was not one of those campaigns, mm. right? I mean, this was 
was um, a situation in which despite structural advantages that are really pretty small if they exist at all, um, you know, it was, it was definitely an election to be won or to be lost. Um, Mitt Romney was not, in the end, I think, a very good candidate. And one of the questions is, does then the analysis on the Republican side uh, come out and emphasize the fact that Mitt Romney himself was just not a great candidate, right? And the way we think about Bob Dole, I mean, Bob right. Dole wasn't going to win his election <laughs> anyway, but I think people say, okay, well, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't a great candidate, but there wasn't some sort of fundamental rethinking and sea change in, in the kinds of ideas that might be driving that. And I think the question is, even if we accept that Mitt Romney was uh, not the world's greatest candidate, do we nonetheless need to rethink more fundamental things, or is that going to be where the analysis ends? And I think we don't really have a clear picture, and there's a real debate going on in the Republican Party around um, that very question. I will note that Mitt Romney's phone call uh, recently, in which he, I think it was yesterday, yeah. um, in which he said that, you know, the reason that he had lost <laughs> was that Obama had been handing out, you know, government favors to all of the people who gifts. voted for him. Gifts, gifts, yeah. gifts exactly. Uh, was quite astonishing, right. and, and my response to that was, wow, I can't believe you really were just such a bad candidate. That's just not going to get you uh, get you very far. I mean, there is some truth in, I think, the insight that, in fact, often the way that people relate to government and shape their ideas about government are, is, in fact, by their tangible relationship with mm, government, right. right? So, in fact, if it turns out that the government helped you when you really needed a loan and you were able to go to college as a result, yes, that does, in fact, so this is what government Republicans, Republicans never help their constituencies, right? right? That's no, no, just uh, that's not, like, the way so things work. Politicians <laughs> using government <laughs> exactly. to provide benefits to people whom they hope will vote for them on Scandalous, shock. Exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. This is taking place yeah. in Washington. But, um, but I actually think that, that I, I think there should be some serious soul searching because um, it's true that Romney had deficiencies as a candidate, but I didn't see anyone in, certainly who decided to actually run, um, right. Right. who was a stronger general right. election candidate than him. Right. And if you will remember, just before the election, when either sincerely or strategically Republicans are expressing the belief that they were going to win this election. Uh, there were not a lot of questions. And, and there was actually, I mean, I would say that the most remarkable thing to me was that Republicans just prior to the election were willing to, to support Romney as he moved pretty dramatically toward the center um, with, you know, and I, you know, I saw it as basically a, a, a very uh, a savvy recognition that the you know winning losing a losing candidate cannot do anything, and so if if Romney has to moderate his positions in some areas, if that's what it takes to win, let's support him in doing that. But suddenly after the election, a lot of hardcore conservatives have suddenly said that you know Romney is the Michael Dukakis of the Republican right. Party, and that's just that's just not true, right. except for the fact they were both <laughs> Massachusetts <laughs> governors. Um, no, it was he was a he was a candidate with flaws, but his favorability ratings on the eve of the election were actually not as bad as people think. They were you know up there and, and relatively close to the president. Um, he made some really big missteps, which seemed completely sincerely to express, like, like you know, the, the old saying that a, that, a, that a gaffe is when a candidate says, the politician really says what he right. really believes. The 47% <laughs> um, statement, I think, was a really big yeah. deal, a really big misstep, because it expressed what, um, what core parts of the Republican Party thought about um, the relationship between government and um, share certain parts of the population. Right. And so that, that, to me, he was, it was not the it was not the messenger 
Um, it was a message. If it was anything about the campaign, it was really the weakness of the, the Republican get out the vote operation right. compared with the Democrats. But what you said, I mean, in a way, the big Obama gap, right, was his Denver debate performance, and it was the same thing. I mean, it seemed to confirm what a lot of people fear that he wasn't perhaps as passionate about the job anymore right. as he was, that he was disillusioned, that he actually didn't really have a plan, and there he shows up and, and gives you the feeling he doesn't even want to be there. So, you know, yeah. almost did him in, despite, you know, many of the things that both That's right, discussed. that's right. Let me bring up health care, because that was something that uh, might have changed significantly in a different direction if Mitt Romney had been oh, elected yeah. president, right? I mean, that was one of his day one activities, was repealing the president's uh, health care plan. Um, do, do you think he would have done that? Well, I think the first, I mean, I think he, there would have been major changes in the law. Um, what repeal and replace meant sort of morphed over the course of the campaign. Romney at one point said, my plan includes a, uh, protection for people with pre-existing right. conditions. You know, his, one of his campaign uh, 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 staff later had to go to the reporters and said, well, you know, when he said that, it's not really true. And it's, if, you were that's what if you weren't sure, right? right. right. I mean, if you weren't so, short with yeah. pre-existing so conditions, right? I, I qualification. You know, I haven't thought through exactly what the, the revised, the revisions would be. But let, let's be clear that the... Um, that, that this was a, a close election, as Bev was saying, and a lot in policy terms hung on it. And the reason is that because even though it's hard to get things done in Washington, um, the big challenge is getting would have been getting over a Democratic filibuster. So let's say everything was the same, but Romney won. It probably they would have done a little better in the Senate had Romney won and, and the House. But um, but let, so they have a House majority. They might have a slightly uh, um, uh, close, they might be slightly closer to a Senate majority. Um, Romney would have immediately gone to the reconciliation process, the budget process. He would have, he would have through that process, probably extended uh, all the Bush tax cuts. Um, you know, there was debate about exactly what his tax package would look like, but I think the immediate goal would have been to try to lock in those. And then he would have probably tried to strip out most of the subsidies in the health care law, some of the other requirements. The reconciliation process, the budget process, as we learned during the health care fight, doesn't allow you to do anything you want. There's rules about what's germane, but you can do almost anything that involves taxes and public programs and, and financing. And so core elements of the health care law, the Medicaid expansion, the subsidies for coverage, I think would have been in deep jeopardy. And it, so we, you know, I think this really is a reminder of how consequential elections can be for policy. And, and I want to be clear that I don't think that for most people they understood that, that, that these issues hung in the balance. I mean, there's been some warming to the health care law among the public, but honestly, what we find is that these fights, which hinge on get out the vote operations, on sort of gauzy things about the candidates as a whole, maybe one or two big issues, determine in a very polarized environment a whole host of issues that depend on control of the levers of government in a, in a political world in which uh, honestly, it's so hard to get things done that once you get something in place, it, protecting it is really, uh, is in a, you're in an advantaged position. So, so what is left, what is the heavy lifting left for the Obama administration oh. with respect to health, the, the health care bill? Well, it's really, law, getting, rather. it's really getting the states to act. <clears throat> um, so there are two things. One is that uh, the Supreme Court decision uh, last year said that the Medicaid expansion, which is a big part of how coverage will be um, expanded under the law, uh, was optional for the states. Um, so the states, um, the, 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 the administration was arguing that all of Medicaid funding should be contingent on whether they did this expansion. The expansion is, in, depending on where states are, is, up, is from where they are up to about 140% of the poverty level. And um, now the states have the option of, of not going ahead. But the fact is, is that 
the initial federal share of that um, expansion is like 100%, and then it declines a bit over time. So it's basically free money to the states to expand Medicaid. I'd be surprised, you know, states would really have to be, you know, their leadership would have to really be ideologically committed to not expanding Medicaid to give up that opportunity. Um, with regard to the health insurance exchanges, which is the other major way that the law expands coverage, only a handful of states, I think 11 at last count, have indicated they're going to move ahead and create their own exchanges. Some other states have said, we know we're not going to do it. And some have said, we know we're going to do it in partnership with the federal government. We're on the eve of the state's determination of that. If the states do not, um, if they do not move ahead on their own or they do not indicate to the federal government they're going to create their own exchanges, the federal government will create these exchanges, these marketplaces, uh, online marketplaces for health insurance within those states. That's going to be the big challenge. And I get the sense, just listening to the rhetoric, that A, uh, a fair number of state leaders, even though they were hoping and holding out until after the Supreme Court and then <laughs> after the Romney decision, yeah, right. um, aren't really sure how to do it or what to do, and that's sort of troubling. Uh, and I think that a lot of states will end up having the federal government step in. Then the question becomes, well, how eagerly and aggressively and effectively mm -hmm. will the federal government set up these exchanges? I mean, the argument for having the states do it, well, the real argument was that you couldn't get the Senate to, right. <laughs> 60 members of the Senate to agree um, without it, but the real argument for having the states do it is that they have local knowledge and they have the capacities there. Uh, it's not an, uh, you know, a decision that can't be revisited, but I, so we're gonna see a it's going to be a messy scramble. And, and we're going to see a, a similar kind of mess around the Dodd-Frank law and its implementation, which is not to say, this is what governance is like. It's not to say that these are disasters or, or failures. It's to say that you know, law is not self-executing, and the administration is going to spend a lot of time, and its allies are going to spend a lot of time next year fighting over achieving things that you know, it had already, quote, unquote, won. Yeah. And I would also add that you know, to the degree that we were, I mean, we we're saying this in the context of Romney's recent comment about right. people's relationship to government and when government helps you, you vote for the people who might have helped you. I mean, one of the things that I think politically has been so difficult about this law is that it was passed, it was big, it was controversial, and then no one experienced it, right? Yeah. And so Obama has been saying all along, you know, try it and you'll like it. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> and so now now that's actually what's going to happen, yeah. and a lot of it is going to its political consequences. I think from here on out, you know, Jacob is absolutely right that it's going to depend on implementation, and it's going to depend, you know, its popularity as a law and a set of programs is going to depend on, you know, how it is that people actually uh, now experience it on the ground, which they really haven't been doing up to this point. And, and the exact same thing, of course, is happening in parallel with the other big achievement that you talked about from the first term that is sort of unfinished, which is Dodd Frank. The Wall Street Reform Act. I mean, it's it's about I don't know what the final count was. Nine hundred and fifty pages. You compare that. We've been talking about You've FDR, read every page. right? Every <laughs> single one. That's right. It's been actually called the uh, Consultants and Lawyers Full Employment Act of two thousand. <laughs> but the I mean, jokes aside. I mean, the the Securities and Exchange Act was about twenty five or thirty pages. You know, yeah. uh, Glass Steagall wasn't very long. You know, this is a massive bill, and it's been criticized for being relatively vague. I mean, you now have, you know, dozens of agencies, some of them who are already in existence, others who have been created, you know, issuing thousands and thousands of pages of regulation that have to find their way through the financial system. So, you know, the policy is, you're saying, you know, it's complicated, it's messy, it takes time, but it does, in the end, affect people's lives, and they'll see it, you know, when they, when they get their mortgage or refinance and so on. So there's going to be a lot of attention now on the implementation of those two you know, major achievements. So what new issues do we think that the administration itself is likely to push hard on in a, in a second term? And, and Beverly, actually, I'm curious to hear a little bit about 
um, how presidents use their second terms uh, differently from the way they use their first terms when they are thinking very much about re-election. Right, right. Well, I think it's, it's an open question about um, the Obama administration, because I think they haven't been signaling very strongly. And aside from the things that we've already, yeah. already talked about, right, I mean, a lot of the election, which is fairly typical, this round has been about things that won't happen right, if I become uh, president once again. So uh, around things like the what the Republicans might do around abortion, um, around kind of culturally conservative issues, right? I'm going to hold the line on this. And so is, the, is that action or, or inaction? I think we've seen some signals there. I mean, he's been talking a little bit about immigration reform. Mm -hmm. um, and that will be certainly one of the places where seeing what the Republicans are doing, see, seeing kind of how bipartisan that that becomes will be very interesting. But I think the truth is that we that we actually don't know. We haven't seen a very kind of bold agenda aside from the kinds of things that we've been talking about. Um, in terms of what it is that presidents uh, often do, right, there are precedents for um, particularly Democratic presidents uh, coming in with much larger, much more expansive agendas. Now, that can go a number of ways. I mean, Lyndon Johnson wasn't really quite being reelected in the sense that um, he hadn't actually been elected for that first term after Kennedy was killed. But, um, you know, so he come, came back into office with the war on poverty, the Great Society, with this very broad ideological vision, which made a lot of changes, uh, produced a lot of backlash. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt, when he came in in 1937, this is the story of uh, overreach of all overreaches, right? He attempts to pack the Supreme Court, um, and he runs into real stonewalling. But I don't think in this case we're going to see that kind of story. I mean, A, I don't think Obama's in any danger of overreach. If anything, he's kind of in danger of underreach and has long been in danger of underreach uh, in many ways. Um, but in Roosevelt's case, you know, what actually happened in his second term was that um, his opposition really coalesced and began to, mm. to stonewall in new ways. And that doesn't seem to be kind of the direction that things are heading here, though, though again, we'll see. So I think it is actually one of the great open questions. Um, we're going to see some consolidation of what's already happened. Uh, we're going to see some not doing things that might happen under a Republican administration. But I mean, I don't think we've seen now we're moving on to legislative triumph X, Y, and Z. It, it just hasn't been that. I clear. think immigration is the one area mm -hmm. where I would expect, you know, pretty bold initiative. And I think it's, it's an area where will be, you know, very difficult, at least for some parts of the Republican Party, not to move after what just happened in terms of the coalition. The other one I'd put out there, and I'm, I'm you know, curious what your sense is, you know, very mixed signals about um, the sort of intersection of energy and sustainability, right? Uh, so it was a big deal when Obama campaigned in 2008, climate change, renewable energy, uh, energy independence. You know, we got this, we got this, this natural gas boom all of a sudden. Uh, and some politics around coal. All of a sudden, the debate has shifted and it is about energy independence, but the climate change part was entirely absent. I mean, Obama actually managed to spend, I think, seven minutes talking in one of the debates about energy without ever mentioning climate change. Then he mentions it in his victory That's speech, right. and yesterday he downplayed it again in a press conference. Yeah. So, you know, that's an area where I think there, there is room for some bolder initiatives, but it's not clear exactly in what direction he might want to go. Let me uh, interrupt for a second because we, we've got a, a question from, to take a question from a viewer. Um, and this is going to take us back to um, electioneering and uh, electoral politics. Uh, Jared Gilbert uh, tweets us to, uh, to ask, um, 
uh, to note that, that appeals to white evangelicals seem to have lost some of their potency um, in, the, in the electoral process. How will um, political relationship to faiths evolve in the next few years? Do we think that religion is going to be... It, uh, Mitt Romney's Mormonism was not a big issue, as was once thought to be. Is it going to be an issue in the future, religion? Oh, it will certainly be an issue. I mean, <laughs> it doesn't. Di this, yeah, this is not disappearing from American politics. I mean, the so evangelical Protestants, um, except uh, yeah, white evangelical Protestants, very strongly supported the Republican Party. This was a, not a case of a weakening of support or even really of uh, of weakened turnout. It was of a much better turnout operation on the other side um, and. There is certainly a story to be told about younger voters. They're more likely to be secular even when they have faith. They're less likely to be um, uh, committed to more conservative elements of um, Protestant um, uh, Christian conservatism. But, but I think there are two stories to tell here that are just worth mentioning. One is that, th that so that, that um, alliance of the kind of conservative economic philosophy of the Republican Party and Christian conservatism has been has been fraying for a while in the sense that it's just not capable of producing large enough electoral majorities if you're getting substantial turnout uh, across the population. Um, it's also fraying. It also is fraying, I think, because the um, the kind of conservative economic message came at least up to this last electoral cycle was coming to dominate. The Tea Party actually has a lot of Christian conservatives mm -hmm. in it. And, for, and interestingly, that it really was dominated by commitment to sort of constitutional fidelity, which some people sort of see as a, having a biblical element to it, and uh, conservative economic um, theory. But um, this time around, what was, I think, pretty clear is that when the Republican candidates, uh, Romney probably was the least, uh, uh, the, you know, was the least committed to this of, of, uh, of some of the, the major leaders of the Republican Party who were in the spotlight. Um, it was the Senate candidates, really, that brought this to the fore. Um, when they tried to sort of go overtly appeal to the conservative um, religious base of the party, they, they ran into serious, serious difficulties. So my sense is that this, that this is still going to be a core element of the party. If you look at the platforms, it's, the Republicans are very committed to conservative um, social issue positions, but that it is, it is clearly not a winning electoral strategy. And, and in that respect, there is a shift. Um, so it's not a shift in terms of the ability of Republicans or even the eagerness of Republicans to appeal to conservative evangelical voters, but of the degree to which that allows them uh, to engineer electoral victories. And so the question is, do, where, do, do they, they clearly, and they clearly are alienating some uh, a, you know, a non-trivial share of the electorate with these appeals. So the question is, do, as before, Bev was asking this more about the general philosophy of the Republicans. Do they do they take this as a sign that there's a need for moderation, or is it going? Are we going to see this continuing um, sort of uh, tension between midterm and 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 uh, presidential elections, where with the lower turnout of midterms, you can actually use these strategies, but it becomes the Achilles heel in a presidential election? I don't know, but um, to me, it's a it's 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 very it's a sort of explosive side of Republican politics because it's both essential that they continue to activate this core part of the electorate and it's costly for their long-term electoral success. Let's turn to foreign policy. Uh, there's a lot going on in the world outside the United States, obviously, um, much of which the U.S. is involved in. Uh, we've still got a lot of troops in Afghanistan, uh, China and the Middle East um, 
uh, offer us something new and interesting every day. So um, I wonder uh, what um, you think the, the, the most immediate and can I, then... Can I toss something in there? Because Please. we're again sort of narrowing the front. Yeah. So we're talking about a fiscal cliff. The entire European Union is going over a fiscal <laughs> cliff right now. It is the biggest economic zone in the world. Yeah. You know? And it was entirely absent from the debate. The yeah. U.S. plays an incredibly important yeah. role at the IMF. Um, you know, even the foreign policy debate has been focusing narrowly on a couple of places. You know, we, we can start with those places, but let's also, you know, remember the rest of the world that is looking to U.S. leadership on a whole range of yeah. issues. Well, keep going. Well, you know, <laughs> <laughs> well, the Greek economy contracted 7% yesterday annually, right? I mean, this is, you know, you're seeing the disintegration of, you know, a, a project that has been going on over two generations, really, with U.S. support. Uh, but I think more importantly, it raises some important questions again about the sustainability of our model of, of balancing, um, you know, market economies with you know somewhat comprehensive social protections, um, and uh, you know it, it raises questions about the role of financial markets and all of this and how they get regulated. The U.S. and the European Union have come up with somewhat different responses to you know the the 2008-2009 financial crisis, so. You know, there are major challenges um, that um, uh, not just affect the future of the global economy, but also some of the other debates about how we work our way back out of this uh, financial crisis. And they were entirely missing from the campaign. I actually think, you know, you were talking, you were asking Beth before about how second terms mm -hmm. are different from first terms. You think about Reagan, you think about Clinton. It's much more about foreign policy than the first term was. You know, Bush, mm -hmm. uh, too, in that respect, was probably a little bit different because of 9-11 of, of primarily. But I would hope that we'll see a lot of room for the president to actually lead in, in, in a national uh, issues, which include, of course, Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, well, and just to second that, right, I think also the way in which Europe has been talked about in American politics up to this point really has been on the business pages, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And the idea that somehow the European crisis is going to engulf the United States, or what is the United States going That's to right. do about it? But it, And, it, and Romney's conclusion, point, we don't want to be Spain, right? I mean, right. that was sort of how it came into the debate at, right. at one point. Well, you're seeing really, I mean, look at what happened in so many countries this week, right? You're seeing actually this growing level of social instability, social and Correct. political instability in Europe. Uh, which hasn't really yeah. kind of made its way onto the American agenda at all, but seems to be uh, on the increase and um, that maybe it's time for all of this to get well, off the business well, and Beth, page and, and, and into the... And, into and the, as a result yeah. of the implementation of austerity policies that, you know, uh, you know you're talking about uh, some of the people who have been shaping Republican economic policy, you know, that's part of what they've been advocating to a certain extent, right? I mean, so there's a general debate of austerity, um, how to manage your debt, how to actually remain competitive without um, uh, you know, getting rid of social protections. You know, we're going to have a big debate in the U.S. probably uh, this period about entitlement reforms, and we've focused on the tax cuts and, and revenues. You know, Republicans are going to look for uh, some concessions when it comes to entitlements. And so those are some of the same issues that, that, uh, that you see playing out in Europe right now, for example. David, what are, what are some steps that... Um, the United States could government could realistically take to have a meaningful influence on yeah. circumstances in Talk Europe. Talk some sense into Angela Merkel <laughs> at this point. I'm, I'm quite serious. Yeah. I mean, you know, the I think it, it, you know the U.S. The Chancellor of Germany. Yeah. Sure. Right. <laughs> so that, that's right. Um, so uh, you know, really, I mean, the the um, uh, you know the, the U.S. actually, despite you know a lot of the rhetoric about austerity, you know, there's actually been quite a bit 
you know, more fiscal expansiveness than, than what Germany has imposed on much of the southern European countries. Of course, there is a big moral hazard problem, and, you know, that is actually what is going on. But, you know, that perspective from the outside that the European Union is, is uh, you know, playing with fire, that Germany's insistence on austerity is putting the entire common currency at risk, and that is a, a global issue and not just a an intra-European issue, I think, is important. And, you know, Obama... And by playing with fire, you mean the euro? Yeah, I mean the euro. I mean, I, well, actually, I mean the euro from an economic perspective. I, the euro is inseparable from the European political project. Mm -hmm. uh, but then, of course, also, you know, who else sort of, ex you know, espouses this, this model of, of liberal economic policy, you know, general... Uh, emphasis on, on on market system, but balancing it to a certain extent with some social protection. You know, in that respect, you know, Europe has been uh, not too different from the U.S. compared to some of the other models that are now uh, flourishing in some emerging markets, right? And 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 there is a uh, a crisis of the legitimacy of that particular model that I, that I think you know is, is is not all too different from what will be discussed in the U.S. potentially. Yeah, and I would say just to add to that is that you know there is that great old Benjamin Franklin quote that if we don't hang together, we're going to hang separately. And I do think that what we're seeing in the world economy right now is, you know, the U.S. has done relatively better. Um, yeah. And it's done relatively better in part because it did not pursue austerity policies. The perfect example of this comparison is looking at Britain and the United States because their economic crisis was relatively similar. They have similar economies in many respects. Uh, Britain's economy is, you know, much, much more liberal than other parts of Europe in the classical conservative sense. But the Cameron government pursued an austerity policy that actually hasn't fully kicked in yet, um, and it just recently slipped back into recession. Uh, its uh, budget deficit has gone up, and it's given the Labor Party actually a real chance of, of recapturing the government. And uh, if you look across countries, the U.S. has done about as well as, as almost any country, and that's partly because of the, the much maligned stimulus package. But looking forward, and this is really, I think there's a Keynesian kind of dealing with a financial, you know, okay, there's a financial crisis. There's dealing with a financial crisis uh, and a Keynesian response that, um, and, how, and how aggressively it was pursued. But then there's just this question of, you know, what is the long-term growth trajectory of advanced industrial democracies, of right. rich societies, right? Mm -hmm. What's the future of the middle class? The middle class in is the key the, in a world economy. In places. And we are... And we are, we are hanging together on that question, right. uh, for better or worse. Um, and, um, and so if the Euro, you know, I think this is the sense in which the, there's far more similarity between the European model and the American model than there is between, say, the U.S. model and the Chinese, Chinese model. model. And, um, and sort of really thinking through, how do you combine um, a basic level of economic security, investment in public goods, and, and, um, and innovation with, um, you know, with competitiveness, with um, uh, rising uh, living standards? How do you deal with the rising inequality in the United States, which, you know, the U.S. is leading the world uh, in this dimension, uh, the rich world in this dimension, but other countries are following us? Um, and that, those kind of questions were definitely not at the center of the, of the presidential debate, although I think inequality really was a kind of beneath the surface, yeah. one of the fundamental issues. But they are at the center of the question of what our society is going to look like a generation or two from now. So uh, let, let me press you guys a little bit uh, on, on Afghanistan, just because it seemed to have been largely mm. absent from uh, as a major campaign issue. Um, but if I'm not mistaken, something like 68,000 troops still there. Um, it's not on the front pages of the newspapers uh, very often lately. Um, 
is uh, do you think uh, that the president do you, do you sense that the president has a real commitment to um, to continuing to wind down there and sort of how good a job does the United States appear to be doing in um, helping uh, the Afghans create a government that that can manage its own country look uh, we should be in a very different position at this point I mean I you know, I don't know if that's politically correct to say. I mean, we're we're sort of want, trying to do, or the U.S. is trying to do, and, and and its allies at NATO as as best as they can. But the mere fact that, you know, 11 years after the beginning of this, you know, we're we're still talking about Taliban strongholds. We're still, uh, you know, concerned about uh, whether the government there can sustain itself. You know, really does highlight that uh, we're we're not trying to reach the lofty goal that was set out here. I mean, this is about uh, a reasonably responsible drawdown and withdrawal, not completely unlike what happened in, in Iraq. Um, the situation is going to be different from the way it was before the invasion, but it, it's, a, it's a, you know, uh, far cry from what the original um, Goal was about what these countries, you know, should be looking like. I mean, nobody's even talking about sort of solid, democratic representative institution there. It's really about putting the government in a position where they can provide some basic security and they can continue the struggle against extremism. So, um, I, you know, I think the uh, the administration can't back down from their uh, withdrawal plans. Uh, you know, that would uh, uh, be untenable, and 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 it's just about you know managing that withdrawal in the most responsible way. But you know, Afghanistan is facing tremendous challenges, just like many other countries and that are affected by extremism. And, and, and really, I think the West hasn't come up with, mm -hmm. you know, a, a, a sensible solution um, for those challenges for those countries. Sort of tried it our way, made it a little bit better, didn't really succeed in every respect. Back to you. And I do, th oh, and no. I was just going to say, and I do think you see a real retreat on the part of the Obama administration. I mean, a real appetite in the country not to be putting troops anywhere, right? Yeah. I mean, having failed to some degree, right? I mean, having really not accomplished what was uh, supposed to be accomplished, if it was ever accomplishable, which I don't necessarily uh, agree Fair that point. it ever was right. uh, possible from the beginning. But nonetheless, you also see, I think, a very disturbing turn and one that, uh, you know, when it came up in the debates, uh, all you got was sort of agreement between the mm -hmm. two parties. And this is one of the reasons that uh, foreign policy didn't play such a big role in the debates, because it really wasn't a point of very significant division between the two candidates, but a turn to uh, much more secretive, intelligence-based strategies, the widespread use of drones, and these That's sorts right. of things that are going on um, really in increasing numbers um, by our, our, uh, our, our constitutional scholar president. Yeah. Um, and I think ultimately these are going to be one of the great legacies of the Obama administration, but, but really aren't on the front page yet in ways that uh, you know, they, they may ultimately be, but um, in ways that I think deserve more attention. We've got just about five minutes left. I want to uh, return uh, to a question about domestic politics. This is about the Electoral College. Uh, so, you know, we talked earlier in the, in the discussion about the fact that this was a close election, certainly in the popular vote. 
Um, the Electoral College was not close. Uh, it, was, it was, I don't know if it's fair to call it a blowout or not, you tell me, but it was a decisive victory for the president in, in the Electoral College. Um, like it, don't like it, will it ever change? All right, well, those are, those are different questions. <laughs> I'd say, <laughs> right. hate it. Um, <laughs> On a scale of one to... <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't know, but I mean, you know, if, so here, let's count the things that are wrong with the Electoral College. One is it's malapportioned. I mean, it's not as badly malapportioned as the Senate, but it reflects Senate malapportionment, so you get the number of Electoral College votes as you have some of districts and Senate uh, seats, and so that gives these very sparsely populated states a little extra... Uh, edge, but that's uh, that's not the biggest aspect of it. I think the the other uh, uh, other big thing is the so that I that I supremely dislike about it is the concentration of all uh, electioneering in the battleground states. Um, the fact <coughs> that um, that you get th this winner take all dynamic, which means you know that you're really your goal is really to try to get just as the president did, just over the the 50 percent threshold, and everything else is basically wasted. And then I would just say. Um, there is a real issue of legitimacy in those cases, and they do occur when the Electoral College vote and the, and the popular vote go different directions. I was secretly wishing, just sort of in the back of my mind, but I'm not sure, I, I, I think it would have been a bad outcome on multiple dimensions, that, um, that Republicans have won the popular vote and lost the Electoral College vote, only because perhaps, just perhaps, you might get um, a little bit more interest in Electoral College reform. I don't see it. So you, the first question is, do I like it? No. The second is, do I see a, much of a prospect of changing it? No. If 2000 didn't create enough pressure to do it, then I'm, I'm doubtful that um, there's anything foreseeable that will. I think the best hope is that you, that you move for a variety of ways. You move towards the allocation of electoral college votes by the states uh, proportional to the to vote totals within those states. It could only be done. I mean, well, Akhil Amar at the law school has three ways it could be done, but I only foresee it being done basically through some kind of multi-state compact, and that's the best we could hope for, and that would be pretty good. I agree. Not a fan. Not a fan. Don't like the Electoral College. But uh, just to add one reason to, to Jacob's reasons, it's not just that it means presidential candidates say don't come campaign in a state like Connecticut. It actually <laughs> really has this them. really, <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, that might be a fine thing. Um, but it really profoundly affects the way that people behave politically, right? right? So not just that you have to go to a swing state to do anything meaningful, but the ways in which it suppresses, right, anyone's ability to sort of be activist oriented in their hometown, uh, to make political connections with their neighbors, to have it really matter whether Obama won Connecticut by three million votes. I don't know how many people quite live in Connecticut. We'll, we'll make our lowers. <laughs> three and a half. million votes uh, or, or, or 100,000 votes, if that mattered that would actually be transformative and not just at the level of where television ads are being placed, but at the level of how people yeah. um, behave politically. But I agree, it's uh, uh, nobody has enough of a concerted interest in better democracy, right? I mean, nobody, I think at this point, sees a very clear partisan interest in changing that. Um, and outside of that, it's often hard to, to make really big changes. David? No, I completely agree. I mean, you know, it does, does make it fun for political junkies to think about campaigns and you start talking about all of this. But, you know, I don't think it's going to change. I mean, people, of course, will say that one of the benefits is that states that wouldn't get a lot of attention, mm -hmm. like, you know, the Iowas and New Hampshire and so on, get a lot of attention. But yes, I mean, from an equity perspective, you know, why should they get more attention in California or New York or Texas, right? So, um, you know, as from a foreign perspective, you look at this and you're like, oh my God, you know, this, this system makes no sense. But think when it was built. I mean, it was built in the late 18th century. It's, yeah. it's it's worked pretty well, I mean, in, in, in the sense of providing 
you know, stable democratic government um, over a very, very long period of time. And, you know, so it will probably be you know, with us way, way past you know, our lifetime, would be my guess. And if I can add one quick thing. This was a close election. So our fact that we say, well, was it a, was it, was it a blowout, right? This sort of two, little more than 2% <coughs> in the popular, the popular vote, and a little over about 130 votes in the Electoral College. That is still closer, even in the Electoral College, than all but five elections in the entire course of the 20th century between 1900 to 1999. And the fact that we actually understand this election to have been so decisive and to have been a blowout sort of indicates what a, a, a sort of strange historical period we're actually living through where we've become so used to close elections yeah. that man, you know, as long as the electoral college vote <laughs> and the popular vote match up, we're good to go <laughs> right. and it's decisive. Yep. <laughs> well, thank you very much for joining us, uh, David Beverly and Jacob. I hope you'll come back and join us again sometime. And thanks to all of you for watching at Yale Live. We'll see you next time.